I just wanted to let everyone know that uh, Michael and Renee Sumption gave birth to their baby. Renee did most of the hard work. But, uh, but you know, us, us guys, we know that we're involved in that process. Somewhat. But not to the degree. Uh, she, she made a gen genuine commitment to, to the process. Uh, anyway, they gave birth this past week. Uh, Matthew Ryan Sumption, 9 pounds, 11 ounces. That's why she looked like she did when you saw her stand up here. But anyway, uh, little Matthew had a, a, an infection of some sort, and uh, he had to stay in the hospital for a few days. Anyway, came home Friday. Uh, he's being treated for it, so they're home. And so I know they appreciate your prayers. Also, if you want to jot this address down and send them a note or a card or something like that, I know that would be appreciated. Uh, the Sumptions, S-U-M-P-T-I-O-N, 1722 West 21st Street in Santa Ana. 92706. 1722 West 21st Street, Santa Ana, 92706. Uh, also, um, in a way of a special announcement, I know many of us are involved in small groups that meet independent of this group that meets on Sundays. Uh, if you're not involved in a small group, or if you are involved in a small group, mark this on your calendars, November the 9th, the Sunday evening. We will be having a special dessert night where all are welcome uh, to get together. I know that you like to hang out in the back and visit over donuts. Well, this will be actual time that's designated just to kind of do that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, it's November the 9th, a Sunday evening at 7.30. We'll have uh, details next week as far as flyers and selling of tickets. And uh, also there will be entertainment as well. So dessert, coffee, entertainment, all for three measly dollars per person. So anyway, actually, we're underwriting most of it just to get everybody together, but you know, you have to make some sort of commitment. That's way you'll appreciate being there. All right. The last time we were together, uh, we concluded our study in the book of 1 Peter by recognizing that we have an enemy, an adversary, the Bible calls the devil, who's determined to destroy our lives. Uh, he prowls about like a lion, stalking his prey, seeking someone to devour. And since this is truth, we are also commanded to stand firm and resist the strategies or schemes of this formidable foe by taking up the sword of the Spirit, which Ephesians chapter 6 tells us is the Word of God. So if you'll recall, we identified the number one tactic used by, used by this opponent to bring about our defeat, and that is to what? To cause us to doubt the truthfulness of the Word of God and to make the worse appear the better. To cause us to doubt the truthfulness of God's word and to make the worse look the better. So today in this single session, which we'll just be meeting this week, as uh, Dave mentioned, next week's a missionary Sunday. And then the following week, we'll be starting a new series on the book of 1 Thessalonians, which basically has a theme in there to be ready. I don't know if any of you have heard about this Bible code and things like that, where, you know, mathematical formulas are being derived from the Bible. And somehow we're coming up with dates and things of that nature. And, you know, the, and from this Bible code, they're coming up with the year 2002 or 2006 when Jesus is coming back. You know, I don't know uh, the validity of any of that. I, I don't set dates. The Bible says not to set dates, but it does say to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. So 1 Thessalonians uh, is a book that helps us uh, to be ready for that blessed hope, the Bible says, of all of those who are called by God's name, the blessed hope of the return of Christ. So that's what the study is going to be about, being ready for that day. 1 Thessalonians uh, will take us there, and that's in two weeks. Anyway, uh, in this single session, we're going to examine the life of a uh, man who had a lousy start in this race called life, but somehow or another he miraculously finished strong. 
So we've got a lousy start, but we've got a strong finish. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, the story is told of an Anglican priest uh, who struggled as he tried to somehow or another adjust to modern technology such as overheads and microphones and lapel mics and things of that nature. And he really struggled with the use of these things. And I, for those who are not familiar with the Anglican Church, the Anglican Church is very ritualistic in its liturgy and its approach to worship with the priest leading a certain, uh, will, will read a statement and the congregation will respond accordingly. And a lot of times in that type of a, a setting, Sometimes the congregation just responds out of habit and they don't really think through what's being said, but nonetheless, uh, this particular Anglican priest, he's struggling in this one particular service and he's using a lapel like, like the one that I have and he doesn't know how to use it and he keeps moving around and it's making all kind of noise and out of frustration, he just blurts out, there's something wrong with this microphone, to which the congregation immediately responded, and also with you. <laughs> so, you know... I'm not sure what was wrong with him, or if anything at all was, but uh, I'm going to introduce you to a man that I'll guarantee you there's something wrong with him. And uh, this man does not fit the profile of an Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, Moses. Uh, he doesn't fit the profile of any of those men. He could stand alongside the likes of uh, uh, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Idi Amin and Saddam Hussein, and uh, he would make them nervous. That's the kind of guy that he was. He was bad news. He was very bad news. His favorite color was red, uh, blood red. And, uh, you know, and if there was a blood drive to be held by the Red Cross, he'd be the first to jump in line to volunteer giving blood. It wouldn't be his, however. It would probably be yours or mine. That's the kind of guy that he was. And so we need to recognize that uh, he was a merciless man who practiced hatred toward those who loved God and wanted to obey God. He was a man that ironically came from a godly family, and yet he came out of it with an ungodly hatred of God. And it's fascinating when you consider how lousy of a start this particular gentleman had, and in spite of all of these things, he miraculously finished strong. His name is Manasseh, and his story is told in the book of 2 Kings chapter 21. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 21. For those of you not familiar with 2 Kings, it's right after 1 Kings. <laughs> and as you turn there, I'm reminded of an incident that took place uh, of a man who was in a prison, involved in a prison ministry in the state of Texas. And as you turn there, listen carefully to the words of this particular man who was involved in a prison ministry as he recounts an incident that took place at one time in his life. He said, I remember a big dude who came up to me a number of years ago. This guy had lived a hard life. Drugs, jail, more drugs, assault, more jail. He said it all showed in his face. This guy didn't know the first thing about Christianity. All that he knew at the time about Jesus was that the Doobie Brothers thought that Jesus was just all right. I had just finished speaking on the unbelievable grace and forgiveness of God, and this guy came to me and he whispered in my ear, but what if you've broken all of the Ten Commandments? In other words, the man wanted to know if the grace of God and the forgiveness of God could cover everything. But what if I've broken all the Ten Commandments? Does the grace of God and does the forgiveness of God cover everything? And the answer, as we'll find that, is absolutely. It certainly does. And if it doesn't, we're all in big trouble. 
I don't care who you are or what you've done or how evil you've been, if God could forgive this gentleman by the name of Manasseh, he can forgive anybody. And as we look at this, oh, you know what, by the way, too, before we even take a look at this guy's life, I'm convinced of this, that this enemy of our souls does not want us to hear what I'm about to share. Because he wants us to be convinced that somehow or another that God's love that his mercy, that his forgiveness has limitations. He wants us to believe that our past failures are enough to disqualify us from present service to God. He wants to deceive us by distorting the truth of the Word of God. He wants us to believe a lie. So he doesn't want any of us to hear what I'm about to share. Because the truth sets people free. And the truth is the Word of God. And so as we look at this particular passage, he wants you as you're sitting here today to believe in your heart that God could never forgive me for... And you go ahead and you fill in the blank. That's what he wants you to believe. Today we're going to confront that lie with the truth of the Word of God and see that God can and does forgive even the unforgivable. And Manasseh's a living proof of that truth. In 2 Kings chapter 21, we read this account of this man's life. Listen carefully, listen closely, and try to identify with this gentleman. As hard as it may be for some of us, for others, you may think that you could put your name in instead of his. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he had erected altars for Baal, and made an Eshra, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire, practice witchcraft, and use divination, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he set the carved image of Ephra that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. It says, But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now the Lord spoke through his prophets, his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judea, Judah that whoever hears of it, both of his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. 
And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them to the hand of their enemies, and they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides his sin which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin which he committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house and in the garden of Uzzah and Ammon, his son, became king in his place. What a fascinating story as we'll look at in more little bite-sight manageable pieces. But the reality of what I see as we go through this man's life is that, you know, every day we, are, we make decisions. If you are hearing these words and you are alive, you are making decisions right at this moment. You're deciding whether to pay attention. You're deciding whether to jot notes down on things to do this week. You're deciding to read the little flyer that somebody left on your seat. You're making decisions and we all understand and know that. But uh, the, the irony of all of it is, is that when we make decisions that violate walking with God, there's a price that has to be paid. So all of us are free to make decisions, and this man made a, a decision not to walk with God, but to walk far from Him. But fortunately for him, he also came to some conclusions before it was too late. So as we look at this scripture, I want to take a look at these things, and we'll go through it uh, verse by verse if we could. And we see the first thing is that Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Now, that's a scary thought in and of itself. How many of you have sons right around the age of 12? How many of you remember when your sons were the age of 12? Picture in your mind for a moment that son reigning over a kingdom. Now, I have a hard time. That's a stretch for me. I'm remembering when our son was 12 years old, and that's a scary thought. He's almost 18. It's even scary now. <laughs> and the reality of all it is, is I can't picture. I mean, can you see this kid? He's, a, he's, he's skateboarding through the courtyard. You know, and, and, and he's playing Nintendo with his buddies. You know, he's playing Nintendo. Okay, who we, what nation are we going to destroy next? Uh, and, and it's for real, though. And he's 12 years old when he begins to reign. Now, I realize for the first 10 years, he reigns with his father, Hezekiah, in kind of an apprenticeship program. But the reality of it is, is by the time that he was age 22, he began to take over solo, on his own, reigning over the kingdom. Now, from the age of 12 all the way through, we're told that he had 55 years to reign in Jerusalem. Now, obviously, they weren't into term limits. Now, they didn't have those then. For 55 years, I want you to stop and think for a moment how much damage can be done in a business or in a nation when you've got an ungodly leader for any period of time. Could you imagine for a moment? I mean, you know, we've had presidents only been around four years and they pretty much screwed things up really good. And, uh, you know, and, and when you think about it, how much damage that could be done with leadership that's only there four years. Now think about it. 55 years. That'd be like saying from 1945 to the year 2000, you had a leader who could do some definite damage to the identity of a nation. That's the kind of guy they were stuck with for 55 years. And it's fascinating as you look at this. I mean, it's amazing to me what God has to say about him. He was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned for 55 years. And look what it says in verse 2. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I don't know how many times you read through your Bible, but some things just jump out and get you at the right time. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
That jumped out and grabbed me. You know why it did? Because that's not a politically correct thing for God to say. He did evil in the sight of God. That's not politically correct. Because what that assumes and what that states is that there must be a moral standard to which God measures human performance. That would have to mean that the, the, the standard that God set, this man fell short of that standard. He did evil in the sight of God. God had dictated what right behavior was, and he did evil in God's sight. Not only does it mean that God has a set standard of things that are right and wrong, good or bad, you know, uh, things that he would consider evil or righteous, that also means that God sees what man does because he did evil in the sight of God. There are such things as moral absolutes, despite all the nonsense that we hear in our culture today, that there is nothing right or wrong, it's however you interpret it. Well, it doesn't matter how you and I interpret it. God sets the standard, and some things are evil in God's sight, and some things are righteous in His sight. Some things are condemnable, and some things are commendable. And that's just as simple as it gets. So when God says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, He means He set a standard, and all of us fall short of that standard. Every one of us are going to be able to identify with Manasseh and that we've all had a lousy start. All of us fall short of the standard that God has set. None of us are righteous. No, not one of us. All our righteousness is as filthy rags and on and on and on it goes. And God just calls it the way it is. Whether we like it or not, it's true. And it'll set us free if we deal with it in an appropriate way. The guy had a lousy start. And it's interesting as we look at this because God is going to not only call him on his evil but he will begin to identify what this evil behavior is. Oh, wow. He's just going to name it. He's going to run it off. He's going to tell them, hey, this is what you did wrong. And here's what he has to say. The evil practices that Manasseh was guilty of before God, God just kind of lays it out, and he starts with this one. It says the first thing is that in verse 3, it says, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. It's fascinating as we look at this because as we see what he has to say, look, turn back to 2 Kings chapter 18 for a second, just a couple of chapters back, and look at verses 1 through 7. It's fascinating what we read here because God condemns him for rebuilding these high places because Hezekiah, his godly father, had those same high places destroyed. And so out of spite to his godly father, his parent that walked with God, Hezekiah does exactly, I mean, uh, Manasseh does exactly the opposite. And in chapter 18, we read, Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, uh, Hashiah, the son of Eli, king of Israel, that, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. And it goes on to say, and he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to that all of his father David had done. And this in verse 4, he says, he removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Eshphorah. He has also broken to pieces the bronze serpent, serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burnt incense to it. He goes on and says, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. And he clung to the Lord. He didn't depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded. And the Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered. Gee, that sounds familiar. 
Remember when Joshua took over for Moses, the first thing that God told him was, hey, look, if you want to be successful, meditate on the Word of God day and night. Be careful not to deviate from it to the left or to the right, but meditate on it and do according to all that is written in it. And then you will have much success. Then you will prosper. Psalm 1 tells us the same thing, that our prosperity or success is based on whether we're true to the Word of God and we follow and obey all that's written in it. And now here's Hezekiah who did those things, has the son Manasseh who comes along and the first thing that he does, he rebuilds the high places that his father had destroyed. Now it's interesting to think about this for a second, but what's he talking about in these high places? Well, culturally, what they would do is they would build on the top of a high place, which is on top of a hill. And, you know, it's fascinating to me as I was reading through it because the first thing that came to my mind was that of the Tower of Babel. There's something about man that wants to elevate himself to a level that's equal to God. Somehow or another, we're trying to get closer to God, not so we can draw closer to him, so that we can be more like him without having to submit to him. And so there's this, this concept that goes along with trying to go to these high places, and they were places of worship, but they were not there to worship the God of Israel. They went to worship themselves. Several years ago when we were in uh, Athens, we took a side trip over to Corinth. And historically, it was known that there was a place called the Acro Corinth, which we could see from this tour bus that we were on, that was at the very top of the hill. And at the top of that hill in the city of Corinth, they built a temple to the prostitutes. They had a thousand prostitutes that did business in this particular temple. And in 1 Corinthians 6, you can read about it, 1 Corinthians 7, and the response that Paul had to these people in Corinth, he said, because of all the immorality that surrounds you, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But hey, you know what? Let every man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. And he goes on to discuss that. And it was all because of this immorality that was taking place. So at the top of this high place was taking place acts of immorality that were such that only ungodly nations had practiced until Manasseh took over as ruler in Jerusalem. And so we look at this, and he rebuilt these high places. And, and there weren't church picnics going on there, and, and there wasn't a dessert night taking place there. They were doing that which was an abomination to God. And so as we look at this, he continues on and he says that he built for himself an altar to Baal and also made an Eshverah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. Now, I don't know if you know anything about history here, but Ahab was not your role model. I mean, Ahab to me would be like having my son role model or emulate Dennis Rodman. I mean, he's just not the role model that I'm looking for for my kids. You know what I'm saying? And here's Ahab, which the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 16, was the worst king that Israel ever had. He was the most evil, wretched, crummy guy that, he, that, that Israel ever had ruling him. And he did, Manasseh did, what Ahab did. That is not the role model you want. And isn't it ironic to think of what a godly role model this young man had in his own home? And yet he chose not to emulate the godliness and the righteousness of his own father. But he picked a role model outside of that realm that was evil before God. Can I just free some of you up as parents right now? Some of us beat ourselves to death because one of our kids had the freedom to decide to go their own way. Can I just take a huge burden off your shoulders? Hezekiah was the most godly king that ever ruled. There was none like him before. There was none like him after. And he had a son 
who chose to do wrong before God. I think it means that all of us have the freedom to choose. Do not beat yourselves to death and believe the lie of our enemy who wants to deceive you and make you feel guilty about the freedom and choices that others make. That is a lie from the pit of hell designed to keep you from serving God today because of failure in the lives of others. Please don't believe it because it's not true. It wasn't true of Hezekiah, and it probably isn't true of you either. We all have the freedom to choose. Don't beat yourself to death. Continue to pray for that child or children. Continue to love them and continue to do right before God because God will honor you for making right choices. And that's as simple as it gets. It just, you know, it, it, it's sad to think that so many of us feel disqualified because of poor choices made by others. You are responsible to do what's right before God. And your child or your children and your friends and your family and your neighbors and your co-workers and everybody else is also responsible before God. That's the way it works. He rebuilt the high places. He followed the wrong role model. That's why it's important in life to make sure that as parents, we're the right role model because it's hard enough for our children to decide to do the right thing in the culture we live in. So we need to be doing what's right. And it frees you up when you know you did what's right and they made wrong choices. And, and even though it still breaks your heart, you still know you don't have to beat yourself to death. But it's also important to have the right role models in front of them, whether it's their peers, whether it's uh, coaches or teachers or others in their life that will help to reinforce the type of role model that you want them to emulate. And that's as simple as it gets. The second thing that he did was he accommodated religious diversity. Look what it says. And, and he, he erected altars for Baal. He made an Esherah as Ahab, king of Israel, did. He worshiped all the hosts of heaven and, and served them. And what's fascinating, when you look at this, it, it's interesting to me that this man here accommodated religious diversity. Wow, does that sound familiar? He accommodated religious diversity. He wouldn't allow them to worship the God of, of Israel, the one true God, but he did accommodate any other god that they wanted to worship. Anybody else they could worship. Anything else they could worship. But just don't worship the true god. The one true god. Which is kind of fascinating. You know, he's probably one of those guys that, that had, you know, fought to get the Ten Commandments taken out of uh, the schools. You know what I mean? He was one of those guys that, that fought to have the Ten Commandments taken out of the courthouse. But you can believe anything else you want to believe, but you just can't believe that there's actually only one God. Believe anything and everything else. He accommodated religious diversity, which is kind of fascinating when you look at it, because he worshiped the hosts of heaven and served them. What he's saying is, hey, you know what he did? I mean, every morning he got up, the first thing he did is he ran to the newspaper and checked his horoscope. Hey, you know what? Are the stars lined up today? He worshiped the stars. Am I going to have a good day? Am I going to have a bad day? Hey, you know what? You're going to have a really bad day, as you can see as we go through here, because God sees everything you're doing, and what you're doing is evil in the sight of God. He accommodated religious diversity. Now, let me kind of explain something here for a second, because I know this isn't politically correct, but I'm going to just say it anyway. And that is that, you know, you hear people say all the time, but, you know, there's a lot of roads to heaven. 
And they're all paved with sincere intentions. And, you know, if you want to worship Buddha and you want to worship Allah and you want to worship Confucius and you want to worship confusion and you, and you want to worship uh, whatever else you want to worship and whoever else you want to worship, that's okay because you're sincere and somehow or another every road is going to lead to heaven. Can I just, let's just clarify this once and for all. And so I want to bring it back up again. Uh, but turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 for a second. Exodus chapter 20. Why was this accommodation of religious diversity so upsetting to God? Well, let's consider what he says in Exodus chapter 20, starting with the first verse. It says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, why does God have such a problem with accommodating religious diversity? Because he's a jealous God. Why else? Because there is no other God but Him. Hear, O Israel, and know this, that the Lord your God is one. There is only one God. So the God that we believe in is either God or He's not. Period. There is no other God. If there's only one God, then how can somebody's perception of another God make this thing another God? There are no other gods. There's only one God. And it needs to be clarified because we are in this age of accommodating religious diversity to the sake of souls of people who will be destroyed forever in a place that God calls hell or, or the lake of fire for those who do not trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's only one God. And there's only one way to heaven. Jesus summed it up. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. That's the only program out. That's it. So you can't believe what you want to believe and be sincere about it because you're sincerely wrong. That's crazy. But I'm sincere. So what? I flunked a lot of tests in school. And I was as sincere as can be about it. <laughs> right? Yeah, you should yell amen. <laughs> That's the problem. Hey, if there's only one God, how can you believe in another God that doesn't exist? And if there's only one way to heaven by believing in Jesus Christ, how can you believe another way if there is no other way? You see, it's a lie. Why? Because we've got an enemy who wants to destroy us forever. Don't ever misunderstand it. He defiled the temple. Look what he did. He defiled the temple. Oh, to look what he did, you've got to go back to 2 Kings. But he defiled the temple. And it's amazing to me how messed up this guy was. He defiled the temple. He built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I'll put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. The guy defiled the temple. He became so callous that he went into the temple of God and defiled it with these idols that he had made with his own hands for people to worship in the place of the only God. That's amazing to me. I just did that to get your attention. I don't know how I did it. I'll try it again, though. But he defiled the temple. It's interesting, too. I'm reading through Matthew 24, and, and I'm reading about the abomination of the desolation. There's going to be a time in the future here on earth where there's going to be a, a world leader who will rise up. 
And at three and a half years into the program of seven total years, he's going to rise up and he's going to take his seat in the temple that's built in Jerusalem. And he's going to tell the rest of the world that now you've got to worship me. It's the final act of desecration when man assumes the role of God and says, worship me. That's how low this guy has fallen. And if you don't think that's bad enough, he went on to murder innocent children. He murdered innocent children. It says he made his son pass through the fire, which was this god that they made called Moloch. What an interesting program this was. And they would make this god who had had outstretched hands, and they would make him out of iron. And in the back of his back was an opening where they would put in wood, and they would start this wood on fire, and it would heat this, it would heat this iron to the point where it was glowing red hot. And then these people would take their oldest son, and they would lay their sons in the hands of this molten idol that they had built to offer to a God that they had built. And they would murder their own children as a sacrifice somehow to this God. How messed up can you get? That they would murder innocent children to gods they made with their own hands? Would it be the same as murdering innocent children in the womb of a mother to the god of sex that our culture has created with our own hands? Murdered innocent children. He wanted to elevate the occult. He practiced witchcraft and used divination, and he dealt with mediums and spiritists, and he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The Bible tells us that not only did he consult these people for advice, but he promoted them to high positions of office in his kingdom. He had witches and warlocks as, as, uh, as uh, you know, heads of different departments. That's how low this guy had gotten. And he deliberately turned his back on God. And as I read through the story, I'm looking at all this, and he did, what, he did what was evil in the sight of God. And look at God's response, because God will respond. And he says, I will make the feet of Israel wander. I will not make them wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they observed to do according to all that I commanded them. Saying, hey, you know what? The nation of Israel was protected by God if they would have only obeyed the word of God, but they decided not to do that. And they followed Manasseh as he seduced the people to do what was wrong before God. And God had had enough of it. And I think it's fascinating when you think about it because some of us have this interesting idea of justice. We want things to happen right away. Now, what's fascinating to me about this is that God did not step in until after 55 years of watching all this crummy stuff this guy was doing. For 55 years, he kept getting away with it, and I'm sure in the first month, in the second month, in the sixth month, in the second year, people were saying, oh, okay, God, how long are you going to put up with this? Just shows you how loving and patient God is. But finally, he just said, that's enough rope. I've had enough. And he pulled out the plummet, and the plummet line was basically what a surveyor used to level the ground. He says, you know what, I'm just going to level Israel. I'm going to wipe it like a dish, and for any of us ever done dishes, you know how that works. You wipe this side, turn it upside down, you wipe that side, you just wipe everything off of it. He said, I'm sick of it, I've had it, I'm going to wipe you out. I'm kind of reading through the rest of this. He shed much innocent blood. And then I get to verse 17 and 18, and it kind of bugs me because as I read this, it just says, And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden. And I'm reading this going, what? That's it? That was it? After everything he did, he just went home and, you know, and he you know, went to Florida like a retired businessman who was sipping pina coladas and playing golf and he, you know, and he went to sleep. That was it. 
It's fascinating because Oscar Wilde, I don't know if any, any of you have heard of him, the Irish poet and dramatist of the 19th century, uh, he was uh, known for his keen wit, gifted prose, and yet he spent several of the last year of his, years of his life in jail on a sodomy charge. This is kind of I, Manasseh's obituary, if you ask me, but listen to what he wrote. He says, the gods have given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in such search of a new sensation. What paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. He says, I drew careless of the lives of other people. I took pleasure where, where it pleased me and passed on. And I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes our character. And that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has someday to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and I did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me and I ended in horrible disgrace. To which Marv Albert shouts, yes. And I don't mean it in a flippant way because I think he can identify with that quote. What we do in the secret of the household chambers, one day we will have to shout from the rooftops. That's the obituary of Manasseh. And the end of it kind of bothers me until I read, as you will read, Second Chronicles, if you'll turn with me to Second Chronicles because it captures the rest of the story. And it's important that we get to this because this is what we're here to discuss, looking at this guy's background. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, he didn't just go to Florida and sip pina coladas and play golf. The Bible says that he misled Judah in verse 9 and all of its inhabitants, that God got disgusted with them. And in verse 11 it says, Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. And if I was writing the story, I think I'd stop right there. The guy was a creep. And finally he got what he deserved. The enemies came in and they captured him. And the Bible says with hooks. And here's what they did. They would take a hook and they would stick it through the nose of a king that they had just captured. And they would chain him in shackles and they would march him through the streets of that country which had just defeated the other. And with great humiliation, if you remember the story of Saul and Agag, the reason that Agag was spared by Saul was so that Saul could be elevated because of his destruction and capture of Agag. This was a common culture, and they would drag him through the streets with a hook through their nose and chains and shackles, and all the people would roar, and they would humiliate and make fun of this particular king that was just captured. Great power, now nothing. Now, what's fascinating to me is this. The guy murdered innocent children. He practiced witchcraft and divination. He destroyed a country for 55 years. He was one of the biggest creeps that you'd ever read about anywhere in the history of the world. He killed his own son. I mean, and on and on it went. He practiced sexual immorality. And the guy was just no good. But here's a problem. In verse 12, it says, And when he was in distress, I guess, when he was hemmed in, when he had nowhere else to turn, when he was caught between a rock and a hard place, when his whole life fell apart and he had nothing to do but look up, it said that he entreated or called out to the Lord his God, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and when he prayed to God, he was moved by his entreaty. God was moved, heard his prayer, and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. 
you read that? Do you hear that? Do you hear what God's saying? As much of a creep as this guy was, and as lousy of a start as he had, when he shouted and confessed his sin before God, God in heaven heard him and forgave him and restored him. Is that incredible? I'll tell you why that's incredible. And I'll tell you why I don't like Manasseh. Because he reminds me too much of myself. Some of you are sitting going, yeah, but you know what? I never killed anybody, and I never did any of this stuff, and I never did any of that stuff. And you know what? Here's your problem. You're missing the point. The point is this. To God, the smallest sin is equal to the largest sin in the eyes of man because God is perfect and he is holy. And even if it's a speck in your own eyes, what you think you've done, the Bible says we all had a lousy start and have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, some of us are here thinking, you know what? I can relate to this. I'm guilty. I've consulted psychics. I've searched for truth in other places besides God's word. I've practiced sexual immorality. I've had an abortion. I'm guilty of these things. I've lied. I've cheated. I've stolen. I'm guilty before God's standard. And you see, our enemy doesn't want us to understand that God can forgive us of even that. Isn't that amazing? To a perfect and sinless God, we all stand alongside Manasseh. Some of us think we're better than others or not as devious as others, but to God, we're all messed up. To God, we all need forgiven. And the prayer that God always hears is from a sinner who says, God, I have nowhere else to turn, but I'm turning to you. I confess my sin. I agree with you that what you say about me is true, and I ask you to forgive me. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and I believe him. And I'm in, I'm in your hands. I'm at your mercy. Do with me whatever you want. And the Bible says that God hears from his throne of heaven, and he welcomes you into the family of God. And it's because we recognize that we're unworthy that God says he will make us worthy. We can't get to heaven on our own. Not any of us. But by believing in Jesus Christ, we can. See, Manasseh believed in Jesus Christ in the form of the Old Testament, which simply was he believed in God. And principle number one that I want you to grasp before you leave is that, you know what? Genuine repentance unlocks the door of God's mercy. Genuine repentance unlocks the door of God's mercy. And it's really important that we understand what genuine repentance is. I've come to this conclusion in my life. There are two types of repentance. There is real and there is fake. How's that, huh? That's pretty good stuff. There is genuine and then there is phony. And if you ever had any children, you know what a phony confession is. You ever walk into your room, your kid does something wrong, he's little, two, three, four years old, and the first thing he says, I'm tarry. I'm tarry. You're what? I'm tarry. Oh, you're not tarry. He just says I'm sorry. That's what he's trying to say. But he doesn't really mean he's sorry because he doesn't agree what he did was wrong, but he does, he does agree that, you know what, what's about to happen, he's not going to like. <laughs> so he's not sorry at all. It's important that we understand that, you know what, here's how we know whether a person has genuinely repented. Look at Second Chronicles 33 again. So Manasseh goes back to Jerusalem. Look what he does. 
Now after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gion in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. He encircled the opal with it and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside. He set up the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. How do we know when there's genuine repentance? That there are works that lead up to repentance. A person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and trusts in Him, I'll guarantee you this will be true of your life. It will change. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, old things pass away, all things become new. When you've got a person who says, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ, and they keep living like hell, guess what? They may think they did, they may be sincere about it, but there is no change in their life. There is nothing to be shouting as far as being reborn of God. There's no change, there's no difference, they're still dead in their sins, and because of that, they will be separated from God for all of eternity. Why? Because repentance leads to works of repentance. The first thing that Manasseh did when he got back to town was he said, man, I screwed up. i got to clean this place up. And where did he remember how to do it? My dad did it right. He tore down the high places. He tore out the idols that he built. He cleaned the place out. He threw it all away. They had a big bonfire, and they sang songs, and they praised the Lord. Why? Because this lost sinner had come home. That man who was lost was now was found. There's works of repentance that go along with it. See, there's two types of repentance. There's genuine and then there's phony. And if you're living a life of phony repentance, that's, you know what? You're not fooling anybody but yourself. God knows your heart. And it's important that we realize that and that we understand that if anyone's in Christ, there is a new creature there. The second principle is this. My past life doesn't exclude, exclude me from present service. Think about this. What a creep Manasseh was. But yet, you know what's amazing? When he confessed his sin, God was faithful and just to forgive him, cleanse him from it, send him back home, restored his kingdom, put him back in a position of authority, and you know what he did? He kept on serving the Lord. My past life does not exclude me from serving God today. How does it happen? Let me close with a couple of true stories, and I want to kind of tie it all together with this. Do you think that Manasseh ever woke up in the middle of the night and thought, you know what, how could God have forgiven me for that? Do you think Manasseh ever woke up in the middle of the night and thought, you know what, man, remember all that sexual immorality? Remember when I killed my own son by offering him to a God that I made with my own hands? Do you think, think he ever woke up with cold sweats, realizing that he had warlocks and witches on his own cabinet? realizing how many people he led astray from God? You think he ever woke up in the middle of the night saying, I am disqualified from doing anything good for God? And I'll guarantee you, yes, he did. Do you? I do. And you know the only thing that sets me free from all of it? Is believing what God says in his word. As far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed my transgressions from me. That he doesn't hold it against me. Every time I think about that guilt, I'm reminded of the story that I heard about a circus elephant. You ever see those big elephants? They just got that little thing on their, on their leg, a little shackle with a little teeny chain. You can't even hold a bicycle in it. And they got this big two-ton elephant with this little bicycle chain around him and a shackle. This little midget guy, I don't care if he's 6'10 to an elephant, he's a midget. And he's smacking this thing on the rear end, telling it which direction to go. 
You know how that happens? When that elephant's little, they put that same chain and shackle on it. It tries to pull away when it's two or 300 pounds and it can't get free of it. So it grows up. The thing about elephants are they really do have a great memory. You know, they do. They remember, hey, and, but they're also pretty stupid because they remember, I can't get free from this chain. So now the thing's 2,000 pounds or 4,000 pounds and it's got the same stupid chain on it and guess what it's thinking? I can't get away from this chain. Could you imagine the damage that elephant can do if it knew that it was free from that little chain? Stop and think about this. How many of you believe that you are still chained to that sin in your past? Can you imagine now for a moment what God's people could do if we realized that we're not shackled to that chain of sin any longer? That, that Jesus Christ sets us free from that sin? That God does not hold our past against us? but has forgiven us and removed it from the east, from the west? Could you imagine what God's people could do for the kingdom of God and the, and the damage we can do to our enemy and his program if God's people were not chained to unrealistic guilt? Do you see why this is one of the greatest deceptions going in our culture today? That Satan, our enemy, wants us to believe that you and I are restricted from serving God because of our crummy past. Praise God that our past, for most cases, is nothing like Manasseh's crummy past, and he was still free to serve God in the present. So are you, and so am I. Don't believe the lie, because it's not true. We got that little chain that's on us, but it can't hold us no more, because the Apostle Paul, who can set me free from this bond of sin? Thanks be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who sets us free. In his book, Will Daylight Come?, Robert Helfer writes this story in closing. He said, there was a little boy visiting his grandparents on the farm, and he was given a slingshot to play with out in the woods. He says he practiced in the woods, but he could never hit anything. And getting a little discouraged, he headed back to dinner, and he was walking back, he saw grandma's pet duck. And out of impulse, he let fly, hit the duck square in the head, and killed this duck. Said he was shocked and grieved and in panic, he hid the dead duck in the woodpile only to see his sister watching. Sally had seen it all, but up to this point, she has said nothing. After lunch that day, Grandma said, hey, Sally, let's wash the dishes. To which Sally said, Grandma, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? <laughs> and as she walked by, she whispered, remember the duck? So Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing, and Grandma said, oh, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help me with supper. But Sally smiled and said, well, that's all right, because Johnny told me he wanted to help. And she whispered again, remember the duck? So Sally went fishing, and Johnny stayed behind. Now, after several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's, he finally couldn't stand it any longer, and he came to Grandma and confessed that he killed the duck. She knelt down, gave him a hug, and said, Sweetheart, I know. I was standing at the window, and I saw the whole thing. <laughs> says, but because I love you, I forgave you. But I was just wondering how long you had let Sally keep making a slave out of you. <laughs> I like that. 
I like that. You know why I like that? Because we got a God in heaven who sees everything. We got a God in heaven who knows our hearts. We got a God in heaven who heard our crying as we cried out for forgiveness. A gut-wrenching repentance from the depths of our soul that said, God, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. We got a God who saw it all, but he also heard our cry. And as he heard our cry, we got a God who promises to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We got a God who says, I'll pick you up and dust you off and I'll point you in the right direction because that's what grace and mercy is all about. But we got an enemy who whispers as he walks by, remember your sin? Remember what you did? And we live in a world that's wondering today, how long will we continue to let that enemy chain us to the sins of our past. The next time you feel guilty for something you've confessed and you've made right before God and he's forgiven you for it and you've gone in the right direction, you've repented, you've turned 180 degrees. The next time that enemy whispers in your ear, remember the past, just say this to him. You know what? Don't talk to me about it. Go talk to Jesus. Oh, and by the way, when you go see him, take this chain with you. Father, thank you for the truth of the Word of God that sets us free from sin. Thank you for this marvelous grace that we can't even begin to comprehend. I can't figure out how in the world a God such as you could ever forgive any one of us. When we look at the life of Manasseh and we realize that that's truth, that you forgive the most wretched of wretched people. And even the Apostle Paul said, to which he was the foremost of sinners. And if he was, so am I. And if I am, so is everyone who's hearing these words. Because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you tell us there's only one way to heaven. And that's by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God, I just pray for those who are here today that have never come to that conclusion. They have never cried out in shame for what they've done. Up to this point, they think they've just been fine. But they don't realize it's not their standard that you hold them to. But it's yours. And it's perfect. And it's holy. And God, we fall short of that. And we just thank you as we cry out for forgiveness that you're a God who's in heaven that hears our cry, hears our prayer, and forgives us of our sin. God, we just thank you that our past does not hold us back from service, but it's actually because of our past and your mercy and forgiveness that we can serve you today. God, I just pray that every one of us, as we're confronted with unrealistic guilt, can remember the truth of your word so that we can be an effective part of your program to reach men and women with the truth of the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.